This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, it's a re-release today. Blair Amani, love this chat. Blair's like, I guess actually technically an influencer. Ooh, we love it. Also, I will be coming to Seattle March 5th, Burlington, Vermont, March 9th and through 11th, Boston, March 12th, Denver, the 6th and through 8th of April, Washington, D.C., April 23rd, Dallas, Texas, May 3rd and 4th, Austin, Texas, May 6th, and Houston, Texas, May 11th, no, 10th and 11th. CameronEsposito.com for tickets. Goodbye. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still I always have folks introduce themselves on Query. Uh, that's the podcast you're on right now. What if you didn't know what you were on? That wouldn't be the first time. I'm really <laughs> bad at reading emails all the way through. Um, so I get into tons of snafus. You arrived You arrived very early. Yes, an hour early, in fact. Yeah. So, I mean, anything could... We could be taping anything now. That's true. I could have tricked you into... You could be on my podcast. This could be your podcast. Thank you for having me of on course, your podcast. Anytime. I'm Cameron Esposito. I'll introduce myself. Oh, you should introduce yourself. Oh, good idea. Okay, so uh, my name is... Oh, I did the so thing. <laughs> my name is Blair Mani. I am a queer Muslim black person activist. Um, that's the first time I said those words in that order. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm all about like representation and helping people realize that they can be themselves. Um, and I... Uh, I talk a lot of mess on Twitter. That's also my job. Sure. You have had sort of a, I mean, this is an outside perspective, so like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a large uptick in your like visibility and work and. Yeah, it's been like a meteoric glow up is what my mom called it. (laughs) Yeah, because I feel like I first sort of became aware of you through Twitter, like probably just two years ago or something like that. And then you're really everywhere, really everywhere right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I joined Twitter in early 2016. I was trying to do like a beauty blogger thing, um, which is really funny because a um, couple months after that, I got known, I became known as this, um, you know, Black Lives Matter protester, which is, you know, I've always been an organizer, um, like even when I was younger, because my younger sister is autistic and because she she didn't speak till she was four years old. And so there are all these teachers and like school administrators who were trying to put her in a box and put labels on her um, in a really like negative way. So I was always the kid who was like, leave my sister alone, you know. Um, so advocacy has always been a part of who I am. But it was a lot more of like behind the scenes than front and center. And then I got arrested in Baton Rouge um, almost two years ago. And I'm excited that it's two years ago because then I won't have charges anymore and I can go to Baton Rouge and organize again. Um, but What were you doing in Baton Rouge? Oh, yeah. I forget. Not everybody has a context. Um, so I got arrested. Um, I was actually helping young people organize their own march. They were doing a youth-led march. It was really beautiful. There was like a, a youth preacher. Solange was there apparently. I found out that 
that a year later. Um, didn't meet Solange, clearly. And then it kind of escalated. The police presence became very militarized. Folks had a lot of um, folks being the police had military weapons and they had an LRAD siren, which is weaponized sound. And uh, it just got really chaotic. We were we being my partner and I were trying to keep folks on the sidewalks and kind of peaceful and chanting. Why were Sterling. you down there? Oh, so. I don't mean to like no, give you. No. I just want to. I, I want to ask the the back questions. Yeah, but I so, but I do want to hear the full story and not interrupt you. I was in Baton Rouge because I went to school in, at LSU, mm. and I was contacted by one of the young people who was organizing a march. She had gone come to one of my marches or one of my like protests in Baton Rouge while I was a student there, and she was like on the phone with me. What do we do? Okay, pe- people are saying police are going to be there. Okay, now I'm getting threats. Like, just kind of walking her through it, which is what I do now a lot, like kind of as a mentor activist. Um, and so I decided finally, okay, I'm not going to just support her like remotely from New York. I'm going to go. Um, and actually, I was living in D.C. at the time, and. I just planned on being behind the scenes, being supportive. Um, But then when the police showed up in riot gear, um, I and my partner, Akeem, just kind of got on the front lines trying to keep folks calm, keep folks chanting Alton Sterling's name, Alton Sterling, who was killed, uh, which is why the protests were being being being, uh, organized in the first place, because he was murdered by two Baton Rouge police for selling CDs in front of a convenience store. Um, and there was like video of that that it went very viral was that that perhaps folks listening may have seen if you think you saw a person selling CDs that's who we're yeah talking and it about. was right around the time that um, Philando Castile was also shot um, while he was in the passenger seat and his wife went on uh, Facebook Live and so this like clash of social media and Black Lives Matter. And it was it within a week of each other that these two murders by police happened. And I think it was just kind of a jumping off point where police forces were feeling like we really have to, like, keep this tamp down. And then young people, myself included, were feeling like this is completely ridiculous. We have this righteous indignation that we will not be extinguished um, and we will fight back. Um, and so in the mix of all of that, I got arrested and um, I'm still waiting for them to drop the charges. For resisting arrest. Now, if you see the picture of me, I'm in the air being held by two police officers, but I was resisting arrest. And what, was, what happened right after that? Um, so right, right after that? that, I was the so my job in being at the protest and providing support was to get media attention there. So we wanted to make sure that we had positive attention from the cameras, like writing press releases and stuff, getting the cameras on these young people who were organizing for, uh, you know, the father who had been killed. And because of that, all of the cameras who were later capturing the escalation in the protest, everybody had my phone number. So we get out of jail and my phone's ringing off the hook. Akeem, my partner, his phone's ringing off the hook because all of the contacts that I had had my phone, you know, they all had my phone number. So we started kind of correcting the narrative because the police started saying stuff like, there was a water bottle thrown at us, which is why we had to break somebody's eye socket. Like, okay. So we were clapping back on Twitter and on um, in articles. And it just kind of became like lie in the media, rebut, rebuttal on social media, lie in the media, rebuttal on social media. Um, but I was also working at Planned Parenthood at the time. And uh, I was actually just talking about this last night. It was my first month working at Planned Parenthood, and Cecile Richards really threw her support behind me. Um, I think that it, had it been any other organization, honestly, somebody who, we just hired you for this new role, and you just got arrested. What the heck? That's, you know, um, especially because 
you know, such high stakes doing reproductive justice work, but they really threw their support behind me. And um, I started to use kind of that platform that I was gaining to speak about things like reproductive justice and the Muslim ban and Donald Trump presidency. Um, and when I moved to New York, things kind of escalated even further because there's so many opportunities here to make your voice heard. Um, and I think that voices like mine, which are so intersectional, we're, you know, it's not like there's none of us, but we aren't heard in the media so often. And I think there's this thirst and there has been this thirst over the past two years to hear more marginalized voices. Sure. And and like you're saying, also folks that can speak from multiple angles as opposed to just like, you know, like a call list of this is a Muslim person, this is a queer person, and they don't know each other. And, you know, I mean, also that is good work to do too. Also yeah. talk to those people. No, but, but if there's if there are moments of overlap, that can just show how all of this does work together. Like all of these are systems that are interlocked. That's very true. Um, and then this other thing happened, which is why I think a lot of people know me, which I forgot to mention. But it also happened during the summer. So I'm like, I'm waiting for something to pop off this June and July because that's when things happen to me. <laughs> um, like my appendix ruptured in June and July, got arrested June and July. And I also went on Tucker Carlson. And that was a time where I was booked as just the Muslim. Mm. And they were really adamant. They were like, will you be wearing hijab? And I'm like, well, how else would anyone know I was Muslim? You know, like, it was really frustrating. But when I was on air on that show, I was there to talk about safe spaces. And um, he, you know, I was trying to like contextualize it for people that we need safe spaces where Muslim people aren't going to be surveilled and aren't going to be harassed for being Muslim. Black people need safe spaces where we won't be attacked by police and won't be criminalized, um, where we can sit in Starbucks for, in peace, you know. Um, and queer people need safe spaces where we won't be denied housing or health care, where we can be safe. And Tucker Carlson was like, well, you're not here to speak on behalf of all of those people. And I was like, well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I corrected him and I was like, well, in addition to being a That's Muslim, funny. I'm a black queer woman. And um, I ended up coming out on national television last year hey well welcome thank you yeah and we, and we had been like sort of uh communicating a little bit because of your work at Planned Parenthood yeah and my interest and support for Planned Parenthood so I kind of already I think it's like 2016 when we would yeah. have been starting to talk to each other um I think a lot of people followed me because I was already getting a following from the protests mm -hmm. right and then I had Planned Parenthood in my name mm -hmm. and so I think that's why like Jack from Twitter follows me mm -hmm. and because he he was following Cecile and like all of the leaders at Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. and then he was like oh she has a high follower can I also follow her and I was <laughs> sure. like why not I'll just pretend I'll sure just yeah play along but I was actually very entry level there well right I think it does I mean that's a great point I think it does for me I think what it did was just go like oh well we're on we're aligned yeah I think it sometimes when you look and see something like that in somebody's bio because we're we're trying to figure out like who um who we have as support right now, especially yeah. like on the internet. And now Twitter feels a little bit different, but like in 2016 and 2017, it did feel like, can we create some alliances and support systems that help 
all of us move through the space and like and create I think traction and stuff. From my angle, having you follow me and like me, I also DM people immediately when they follow me because I'm like, <laughs> oh, clearly they want to chat. Um, but like having seen you on your different like stand up shows and the time you made your whole audience eat jelly donuts while you talked about your period, like mm. when you had followed mm-hmm. me, I was like, oh my goodness, she made a whole audience eat jelly donuts. Like <laughs> that was kind of like front of mind. And I started to look more and more to comedy, like really since 2016 as a source of like just relief because so much shit is just hitting the fan constantly and because I'm so part of so many communities it's literally like you know if this part of my community isn't hitting the fan like shit isn't hitting the fan for them it's this community that's being harassed or this person in the headlines and when you turn on comedy show um, you know, except for the really problematic assholes, like when you go on a, pro- a comedy show, like it's just like relief from that. And the way you started to incorporate conversations about politics in a really revolutionary way and like speak about a queer affirming identity and relationships was just really awesome for me. So that was the context I came into when I was already following you, followed me back. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's so cool. Oh, that's really nice. But yeah, I mean, it's very deliberately chosen to try to be... um I don't know, just part of the whole thing. It's it, it, Comedy should be some amount of an escape, but it also, it also should be an escape that speaks to where you are, right? So, like, the escape should maybe be that you have to feel like you have to carry this all by yourself. Like, that should be lifted. But not, I don't think, especially now, should you be, like, um, transported away from the issues because like there's so much to talk about that I don't think it's actually helpful yeah, to like turn there's so it much off, material like, right but there is something in like well let's do this together which I think is s- such an effective strategy for right now I mean I don't know that's just me but that's no I definitely I think. think so I think when I like watch your stand-up shows especially um with your the tour that you are you still on tour well <sighs> I mean, like, perpetually, but yeah. not the thing that you saw. You saw me and Rhea here in New York. And that was so awesome because I was here with my partner. And, you know, growing up bisexual and, you know, also going to a Catholic school, also, like, feel like being in locker rooms where it's like, do they know I'm looking? Am I looking at them? Like, that whole thing. And then uh, being able to experience that with my partner, who's a man, and, like, him being able to walk through that part of my life with me through your stand-up was so cool. And it was like, while it's not necessarily inherently connected to a political moment, right? We're still, even our like relationships and who we're attracted to as children, that's politicized. And so it's kind of like a moment of healing and growth through a- absolutely. comedy. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's so awesome. And a lot of folks, I have a lot of, um, I like, I don't know what the... It's hard to even know what the words are anymore, but I guess opposite sex couples would be what I would say. Come to see me do stand up, and then afterwards we'll be like, I really love query or whatever. Um, and that sort of reveals something to me about the person that's in that relationship. Either they are like hyper allied or they are queer and they just don't like present, present that yeah. way. And, um, that happens a lot, and it's very cool, and I really appreciate that thing, like, that a male partner would want to be there is, like, that's good. Like, that to me is, like, foundational for a positive relationship. I, I especially, I don't know how your partner identifies, but especially if you have different identities, you know, like, if you, you identify as bi and then he identifies as straight, like, it's nice for him to get a chance to visit your world or whatever. Yeah. Like, that seems I think, positive. It, especially in it's a way where it's, like, non, 
threatening because like sometimes we'll go to like very male centric queer spaces and he's like being mobbed like <laughs> he's super cute um, and that's uncomfortable for him right but then we're going to a more femme centric space he it still can be intimidating because if it's a hyper femme centric space and I deal with this a lot when I'm going to like Muslim spaces where it will be intentionally like for women and femmes um, be, like specifically because of cultural taboos and then that's like a different type of like ah um, but I think when it's like you can just be with your partner that's so beautiful but it's interesting because even though we're like you know heteronormative and stuff because I'm Muslim and because he's when I wear a hijab he's seen as oppressive to me mm. so there's this Valentine's Day I think 2017 and we went to Tavern on the Green because hashtag New York things um, and I was like I'm just not gonna wear my hijab because everything from like him holding my hand it's like politicized and so I think there's a lot of stuff that uh, you and Rhea talk about that we could that resonated with us as well oh even that's as a really couple. interesting yeah I mean that to me is like cool that's the goal <laughs> It's almost like we're human beings and we can relate to each it's other. Not, it's like our, our experiences <laughs> are like emotionally based and that even if our experiences aren't identical, the emotions are the same because we're people. Oh, my God. Wow. We just discovered something huge. Oh, like amazing. I Nobel Peace Prize is all around. I can't believe we got so many peace prizes. Two in one. <laughs> that would only took like four seconds. Yeah, you do. You wear a hijab and um, I could imagine that that's... L- let me just take a wild guess. Stressful right now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so when I had like a regular job when I was at Planned Parenthood and then when I was at Do Something Later and I'm freelancing now, uh, bring me to speak at your university or sure. school, by the way. <laughs> um, but when I was having to commute back and forth from an office, the, the stress in the morning of like, okay, am I going to get harassed today? And that's something I think we all go through, especially for like femme presenting folks um, and, you know, really everybody because we live in an awful violent world but just thinking like what am I gonna be okay added time to my my commute like I was late to work a lot because I'm you know trying to do like the mental gymnastics of getting over this PTSD being around crowds from like having been arrested and then thinking about being pushed onto the tracks because I'm Muslim and getting catcalled and all these different things and it's just like ah can I work from home um but then particularly when there was the port authority bombing I was getting ready to get onto the train and I saw there was bombing and I was like Nope, went back home because odds are the name is going to be Islamic and then they're going to turn the conversation into anti-Islam conversation. And some person who is feeling that economic anxiety of being a white man will come after me and, you know, say something nasty. Um, And it's also like a financial burden, too, because the alternative, um, and this is something I was uh, speaking about with folks in Mayor Cuomo's office, is that the subways are so unsafe that a lot of women feel pushed to get take Ubers and take Lyfts, which is often not not safe either. And that's a huge financial burden because of a broken infrastructure. Um, so it's really complex. But I also feel like my whole life, my hair has been politicized. Like when I was 15, again, at that Catholic school, I had short hair and everybody was like, oh, Blair's a lesbian. And I was like, what if I am? And I just felt like everybody was like, oh, just reassure them that you're not a lesbian and you'll be fine. And I was like, no, because like there's nothing wrong with lesbians. Um, It's funny. That's a very evolved 15 year old. Oh, thank you. It's (laughs) funny, though, because the person who I was carpooling with who also had short hair is a lesbian. Mm. And I'm I'm glad that I stood up in that way because she ended up coming out at that school. And I wonder what it would have been like for her had because I I moved schools because it was 
over it was a lot but um I wonder what it would be have been like for her if I had like shied away from just being like no it's okay to be a lesbian um and I actually sat my mom down on the couch at that then I was like mom it was like a very much like a lifetime movie set I was like mom I'm a lesbian and she was like oh you're probably bisexual and I was like oh yes (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like me (laughs) that's really funny yeah I mean so and then your hair being politicized as being short. I get that. I hear you. And then also, like, I'm going to make a wild assumption again that as a person of color, as a black woman, that, like, also folks have a lot of opinions about your hair. Yeah. And then you... You are so intuitive. Look at me. Look <laughs> at me. Um, yeah. And I'm really glad that you're mentioning now the, like, the the time and the money and the energy and the, you know, the whole burden on wearing hijab and going to work. Because I think, like, maybe, and not like, not like we're nailing it, but like, maybe folks are just starting to hear sometimes, like, that, like, oh, having uh, natural hair and being a black woman is like a thing that you have to worry about in your in your life. But I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about wearing hijab and like that having a direct financial Oh, yeah. It's Correlation. about commuting. A lot of companies, in fact, I've heard this from folks who've interviewed at different like tech startups in particular, because um, it's like that. It often happens in spaces where people are so woke that they're really problematic. Because they're doing the thing where they're coming back around and saying, like, um, you don't have to do this. Like yeah. somebody kind of sitting you or down with that sort of you. a thing. Like, or like you, you don't say have to something. Do this to yourself. Or like two black people are talking and then a white person swoops in and goes, that's racist. And it's like, we're, we're oh, experts. Please stop. Sure. Um, but I, I had oh, a friend. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, I don't like that at all. That gives me goosebumps. I have the willies. It happens all the time. Yeah. But I had a friend who, uh, she, you know, nailed the job. She nailed the interview. They loved her background and everything. And then they decided not to hire her because she, they thought it would be too hard on her as the only hijab-wearing woman in the office space to have the job. So it's like 100% employment discrimination. But to them, it was, we're going to like white savior you. Mm. And it, it's so nonsensical because if she's the first one and the only one, if she never gets to be the first one, then there will never be a second one and a third one. And you'll just never have an inclusive workspace. But a lot of people are concerned about, uh, well, if this person is dealing with Islamophobia or we're not going to prepare our staff to be inclusive, this happens with trans folks a lot, too, from what I've heard as well. If there's going to be dealing with Islamophobia or transphobia, that's just going to be HR lawsuits. We're not going to even be proactive or make this a better workspace. That's literally what also what people are saying about, I mean, straight up uh, women right now. That's true. Like the idea of... Somebody being like, oh, I just can't afford a lawsuit. I guess we won't hire 51% of the population. <laughs> or like, In this, like, moment of, of sexual harassment, you're like, or, here, like, here's another idea. You just, like, really work a lot harder to make sure sexual harassment doesn't shitty. happen at your workplace. Well, like, that's another idea than not hiring 51% of the population. It's really wild to me. Or, like, you'll have these, um, like, for the folks who do offer paid leave, they'll have a stipulation that you can't get pregnant for a year into mm-hmm. your job. And it's like, what? Like the idea that companies are afraid, well, what if women are just going to take advantage of this paid leave and start a family? And not that, just women, that by is, the way. It's interesting because it is like a real thing when it comes to a small business. Because for a small business, like office of four or whatever, you're providing health care. That's a big uh, part of the office's budget. And then that person gets pregnant very early and needs to take paid leave. 
it's almost like we should have some sort of a supplemental help from the government because it's too heavy a burden to place on individual people and to make individual people make that choice. Because then there's a boss that ha- that needs an office of four to run and is making the choice between like, do I let this person go or do I not hire them because of where they're at in their pregnancy in order for my business to survive or um, do I do the right thing but then there's a burden yeah, you know, like so, it's really frustrating to me because those like healthcare conversations in particular were happening a lot in Louisiana when I was at LSU, uh, Louisiana State University for uh-huh, folks who hate acronyms. Uh-huh. Um, and it's really interesting to me because they were blaming the people instead of like taking ownership on the government side for making these you know pressures higher. Like, well, people just keep taking advantage of these healthcare benefits, and it's like people get <laughs> sick. Like, right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. It, it And that stuff does sort of overlap a little bit for me with, like, the work that Planned Parenthood does in terms of advocacy and just good knowledge, like giving people good knowledge so that they're not running around being like, these <laughs> these idiots coming in here stealing our health insurance. And you're like, no, man, this is a small business and they need help because they can't, like, lose this this worker. And it's just it's just so much more complex. And, and sometimes folks really do need um, a bigger hand to step in. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! This can be something that we do not talk about, but I want to offer the option because I also know that you you were not raised Muslim, correct? No, this is totally on limits. It's all good. Okay, cool. On limits. On limits. Not <laughs> off limits. I've never used that phrase on limits. before. Limits on. Alexa, limits on. Um, and you, this was, uh, you converted? Yes. What, how old were you? I was, I don't know how, it was 2015. Um, That's very recent. I'm bad at math. But it was yeah. 2015. And it's funny. Well, you're 72. So you were like It was six, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is my mom found this poster that I made when I was like eight years old about the five pillars of Islam. And I was like, oh, well, foreshadowing. Look at mm. that. You know, the movie about my life will have like really honest foreshadowing. But I had always been interested in like world different religions. And it was always really interesting to me how the Muslim community was being maligned after 9-11 because it went from like day and night you know one day we're just you know happy-go-lucky kids the next day we're all repeating talking points from the tv and from our parents to the point where um one of my friend my friend Hassan his mother came to the school to talk to us about the Hajj and to talk about the you know the five pillars of Islam because he was getting like bullied mercilessly because people just didn't understand his religion and we're hearing these talking points on tv about Islam being equivalent to terrorism and to violence and 
uh, is actually the first time I heard about menstruation. Like she was talking to us about how um, during your menstrual period, you don't have to pray. And I was like, what's a period? Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that during your oh, menstrual yeah. period, you don't have to pray. Or fast because passing out is a lot like more likely. Right, right, right. Okay, yes. Yeah, so Islam makes a lot of sense in those ways. Um, uh, everybody should check it out. It's great. I love it. <laughs> Islam is dope. Um, but it was just kind of revealing all these different elements of things that really just resonated with me. And um, the way that I ended up converting, I was doing all these Black Lives Matter protests, and there was another killing that, that involved, you know, like gun violence. And it was the killing of the three young people in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I literally called every mosque and every Islamic center in the area. And I was like, hey, do you need our support? How can we support you? And I, rem- I have like this thread of emails um, saved, like screenshotted, saved on my Dropbox because I keep receipts. Um, but it's every sentence is like, I don't practice Islam, but I want to support the Muslim community. And it's so funny because like less than a year later, I ended up converting um, because that was like my first contact with the community in Louisiana. But it the outpouring of support was just so beautiful. Um, and just as a tangent, but my friend Willie ended up coming to speak at the event. He like ran from basketball practice and he's like in his shorts. Everybody else is like dressed really formally. And he gave the most like powerful speech. And he had been a person who was like dismissing the entire like he didn't want to hear about Black Lives Matter. He didn't want to hear about gun violence. Like he's just trying to get through school. Right. Um, which is valid. He's you know, when you come from a community of trauma and a place of trauma, you just want to get through school. And he had this like transformation just speaking on the mic, talking about how we're all being targeted and we all have to be there for each other. And that was kind of like a a switch went off in my mind where I was just like, we do need to be here for each other. And why am I so afraid of learning about Islam? And so I started to study more and it just really resonated with me. Um, And so when I told my mom I was converting, she freaked out because she's mom. And um, like, a week later, I started dating a guy named Akeem Mohammed, who is my current partner. But absent context, my mom was like, so Blair just converted. Blair just started dating a dude named Akeem Mohammed. Blair's definitely moving to Saudi Arabia, and I'm never going to see her again. And so that was my mom's um, very logical train of thought. So we had to do a lot of, like, learning within my family. My dad was, like, dope, whatever. Like, a lot of my friends converted to Islam in the 70s. Peace, love, happiness. He had a great afro back then. And then my mom was like vehemently opposed to me converting because she just my whole life every time she saw somebody in a hijab she was like oh that poor person's so oppressed and it was always like a passing statement that never sat right with me because my mom like when we were growing up she gave us inclusive sex ed she was like there is all types of sex there is anal sex there is penetrative sex with vaginas there's blowjob like my mom's very this is an unusual mom. Yes. Follow her on Twitter at Chrissy Lupu, actually. Um, but she's very, like, sex positive. Um, awesome. And, in fact, she called The Rock hot the day before Mother's Day, and then The Rock responded on Mother's Day. And I was like, Mom. That's really great. But then when it came, like, so she's so inclusive, right? And then when it came to Islam, she was like, nope, everybody's oppressed. All the women there are being forced to wear garments that they don't want to. And... The first time she saw me in a hijab, and I'm allowed to tell people this, uh, she took it off my head. Like, she snatched the hijab off my head. We were in a grocery store. And I was, like, devastated because I was like, inclusive mom, where are you, you know? Um, and then we, we did a lot of, like, unlearning of, you know, these this white feminism, essentially, and this idea that liberation only looks one way for women, period. Um, 
But then she sent me this article of the the woman in France getting her burkini snatched away by the police. And she sends it to me and she goes, who would do this? And I was like, you, a couple months ago, you know? Sure. And I think that also inspired a lot of my activism because people can come so far when you have the proper education and you just make these communications open. But it also made me think a lot about how folks grow apart from their parents and grow apart from traditions, whether it's coming out as queer or, you know, converting religions or getting a tattoo for some people, we can disappoint or disrupt what our parents think we should do. And that's a growing moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can be beautiful or it can be difficult or a mix of both. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's such a good, that's such a good way of putting it. Also, I think, I mean, I am not speaking from a position of full knowledge this is uh putting together some concepts so feel free to correct me but i think that one issue with islam is that in the u.s we see that we it's a faith that we see through the lens of it being a state religion in Mm -hmm. a lot of places and the state for instance, having like compulsory hijab, mm-hmm. which is totally different experience for the people that live in that country. Yeah. And then that being supported by a bunch of laws. We do the same thing yeah, in this I was about country. To say. <laughs> we um, legislate in this country on Christianity and patrol women's bodies. Conversion therapy, which is rooted in Absolutely. evangelical Christianity. Um, the fact that the Trump administration is going back to abstinence-only sex ed, which is... Ineffective, period. Like, number one, ineffective, and number two, like, extremely dangerous. Like, just dangerous for young folks. It doesn't teach consent. I remember, again, this Catholic school that will remain unnamed, but the Catholic school I went to, I, you know, I'm sitting in this audience, this huge auditorium, you know, when they get the auditorium out, they bring in the boys' school, they bring in the girls' school, they talk about sex, and this man was really, like, talking shit about his wife, like how she was a whore and now she's saved. And she they compared virginity, a woman's virginity, just women, um, to a candle that has been lit. And who would want to relight a candle? And I'm sitting there as a survivor of sexual assault at that age and just thinking, like, well, shit. I guess, like, I'm broken or there's something wrong with me that I'll never be able to, like, I'll never be able to, one, feel valued as a woman because that's where value is coming from in this context, I guess. And two, I have nothing to offer the world. And I think, like, this conversation about abstinence only and placing so much stress on virginity is so psychologically traumatic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it it, it does, uh, it creates huge di- distance between autonomy and sexuality and that is like where you get into the danger zone of assault is when sexuality and autonomy are separated right yeah is when your body belongs to somebody else and so if your body belongs to somebody else because you're saving it or if your body belongs to somebody else because you're using it or someone else is using it like either way um the best thing we can do for ourselves is like is to take ownership own our bodies and be in our bodies and i bring up the i bring up the state religion thing because i think it's I mean, I, I think we we would do well. This is hey, this is just as this is just Cami Esposito on a podcast. But you know, we would do well as humans to move further away from um, legislating belief systems. Oh, absolutely, like, and towards um, allowing for more space. And it just 
seems stark when you grow up in the United States to look at a country that legislates a different faith. Yeah. But it's not it's not different. Similar. <laughs> I think it's interesting because we grow up in this duality in America where and I, I really felt this way with my book, Modern History. The more I learned about stuff, the more I was like, oh, so America's lying a lot so much. Um, but when we grow up with the sense of like, no freedom, equality and freedom for all. And my uncle actually had started my uncle Vernon, he started me saying the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, with liberty and justice for all. And he and he would go unless you're a black or brown person, or you've been affected by the justice system. And there are all these other qualifiers. But we grow up believing church separation of church and state separation of church and state. While I was growing up with that, I remember in middle school, the conversation around equal marriage was really heating up with the I can't remember what proposition it was in California. But prop eight. Prop eight. That's what it was. You're in middle school. Good yeah. God, you're a child. <laughs> but that's what's that's what's so great about this conversation. May I ask how old you are? Twenty four. Twenty four. I just feel like that's good information for folks to have that are listening because um, I'm trying to not just talk to my cohort, like my age cohort. Wokeness is. It comes in all ages. Well, yeah, <laughs> and also like life experience. You know, your experience growing up in essentially a different era gives you access to a lot of things I will never have access to. And then my growing up in the different era gives me access to a lot of stuff you would never have access to. So it's good to just also try to have conversations across generations. Definitely. I mean, but, especially in the queer community. Oh, We're yeah. 12 years apart. That's essentially like that's essentially like that's an era. nine queer generations. Wow. <laughs> but the thing is, so I was growing up with this sense of like, separation of church and state in history class and then i'm looking at tv and they're talking about prop eight and i'm sitting there like hmm this seems really based on one specific interpretation of a religious text that is being right forecasted onto the rest of the world um and really denying people their rights and so i've always been a big like proponent of questioning everything i think it's so beautiful that i came to islam through study because i got to question and ask, like, you know, it, it felt really right for me. And I have a lot of friends uh, who grow up, you know, uh, for their bat mitzvah, their bar mitzvah, learning about the Torah, learning about the Jewish tradition and feeling so much more confident um, in their faith because they know what they do and don't believe in or what they do and, you know, don't question. And so when people come to me and they're like, how are you queer and Muslim? It's like, it was never a question for me. Um, I was closeted because of Orlando and because of the stigma against queer Muslims, but it was never a stigma that came from within. I never felt like I couldn't be queer and Muslim. I was very confident about it. Do, is there, I don't even know if there's like official, is homosexuality like, covered? Is there like a... So, let's do this. Okay. Because so. there they're like ha there is i mean number one then after i can tell you how the how the bible totally really doesn't talk about it yeah so like in the bible there's like and in the torah there's like this list of laws right and then there some folks interpret latin and hebrew as saying homosexuality is not okay and there's also the story of sodom and gomorrah right and that's another time where people say okay this you know this homosexuality was not a word there Let's assume that this was not allowed. You know, like it's the same type of playing with concepts and going anachronistically to right. justify certain social constructs. Yeah. Although I like, I mean, the Sodom and Gomorrah story were really speaking out against. Rape. Yes. 
Good job. Thanks. Good job, team. <laughs> really speaking out against rape. Yeah, It's exactly. the same thing in Islam. So I have, I try to read three different uh, translations of the Quran at the same time because I don't speak Arabic and English translations can get really fast and loose with certain agendas. And um, that's why you're supposed to read it. You know, it said that you're supposed to read it in air quotes in Arabic so that way people can't corrupt it. But that still happens because there's different scholars who um, play God, essentially. So I read three different. Uh, True for all texts. Oh, right. Yeah. We're not reading it from the original thing it was written on or spoken to. So exactly. It's all it's, it's all gonna, it's very derived. Game of telephone. Yeah. We yeah, played yeah. at camp. Um, and so I read three different uh, translations. One translation um, said in uh, the story of. Uh, it's called Prophet Lut, uh, L-U-T, in Islam, but it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that uh, violent homosexuals were in the town. And then the other one says, violent men. And the other one says, violent people. And literally one word can then be extrapolated to create a law that puts people to death. Yes. And that's so frightening for me. But it's also um, for, you know... People being put to death because of their sexuality, that is absolutely frightening, and there's no other way to say it. Um, but as far as the text being interpreted different ways, it's been really affirming for a lot of queer people of faith because it's saying, look at how evil can turn you against yourself and push you away from God. Because everyone who I've spoken to who has d- struggled with their faith and with their sexuality, it can be very alienating. And so somebody reached out to me yesterday on Instagram and told me that they prayed for the first time since they were 16 because they saw my Instagram page and realized that like queer Muslims could exist and be happy. And I'm getting, I'm going to get emotional. Um, But it's like, I feel like that's what it's about. Like, that's what my faith is. That's how I express my faith is by helping people feel like they can consume these religious texts and participate in these religious traditions without feeling like they're a sin or they're haram. Yeah, I mean, it, it's complicated by the fact that then built around that text is community and mm-hmm. then obviously community. And I don't just mean like the government and legislation. I mean like the actual faith communities. And obviously, and obviously I don't have to tell you that those can be built around a bunch of different um, oh, yeah, that's why good I feel or like, bad ideas. I feel like I'm so privileged because as a convert – I don't have that same cultural context a lot of people have where, you know, for one of my friends, uh, they feel like they can never come out because they would ruin their family's business and they would, you know, be like blacklisted across the board. That's not a pressure that I carry. And so because I feel like I have this like extra room to be out and loud, I try to do that as much as possible because it shows others like while you can't be out, you can love yourself and be happy and be successful and be whole even though it's not safe for you to be out to other people. And that's like a conversation I'm having on a constant basis with different people. Um, but not having to carry this like burden of what if is me being myself going to harm others because of cultural, social, religious stigmas and taboos is, is really a privilege, especially in this society for mm-hmm. any religion. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, I definitely was butting up against my faith tradition when I figured out who I was because of, uh, you know, other people. And I mean, I don't, I also don't know that, I mean, of course you need community around you and like, we should encourage that. I like what you're saying about creating bridges and doing modeling and things like that, because I don't, I don't think what either of us is 
uh, advocating is like essentially like go to the woods, practice by yourself. <laughs> like that's not what you're saying. No, I'm um, saying like do it safely. Like I think yeah. it's really harmful when I hear like advocates saying no, be out no matter what. It's like no, some people. Oh yeah, of course. Will be right. killed or be harmed. Um, and so right now we have this like group chat going with all these different queer Muslims. Oh, interesting. For Ramadan. And a lot of us are converts and asking different questions. And it's really, it's really great. Um, but it got to be so many people that now we're like splintering off. It's like why LGBTQ is so important is because we need to be together as a community, but then we also can have our own conversations within that. Um, so it's just like playing out in a microcosm right now. But when I was on the chat and I said, hey, um, a bunch of folks were like, Oh my God, Blair Imani. And I was like, wait, is this like, is it like that? Like, um, and then people like reaching out to me separately and like telling me what I mean to them. That's a wild thing. Like, I don't know if famous people got to deal with that. I'm not famous, but for like well-known people in the past, like maybe 20 years ago, they weren't dealing with that constantly where they're constantly in touch with people who they're affecting, you know? Mm. So it's really humbling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Right. That's a, that's a really interesting and positive side of social media is that you get to be thanked and stuff. I suppose I don't think about that enough. Uh, Cami Esposito, do some more work thinking about that. I think it, it's more um, – well, because I do have a chance to meet folks at shows and stuff that, that – and maybe it's also a generational thing because mm-hmm. social media still feels like it's like half real to me where I think somebody that's your age, it's like a hundred percent real. Yeah. real. And that's very different. You know, like I have that's... so many friends who I've never met. Right. Like the, the illustrator for my book, we worked together on a book project for a year and we were like on the phone crying, like, Oh my goodness, this story is so inspirational. And we'd never met like, and we've cumulatively cumulative in total, <laughs> in total, we probably hung out for like two hours. Yeah. And but we talk all the time and I feel like it's the same with you. Like when I finally met you in person, Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, but I already like I feel like I know you. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That is something that I really like and appreciate. And also that younger folks don't have have guided me in um, like something that I felt like my people my age were doing when social media first started was pretending that we didn't see social media. Right. And then like checking in and being like, so how are you? And what I, when I moved to Los Angeles, I don't know if it's just like cultural difference or just that I started hanging out with a few, like there were some more younger folks in my life, but um, there was a lot of like, oh, I saw you like got this new job and your hair is different and stuff. And then I'm like, oh my God, thank God. We That's can just so relax. Much better. We can just, we can just admit that we like know about each other from the internet. We don't have to pretend that, that it's like there's some big ruse where we haven't been like totally aware of everybody's But it's weird because like sometimes it gets too personal. Like yeah, yeah, you, totally. you still don't acknowledge people's like complete like unravelings, for example. <laughs> but I was on a business call for work and this is when I worked at Do Something and a partner there called and was like, oh, and by the way, Blair, you're doing so great on this call without your Ritalin because I had tweeted about running out of my Ritalin what prescription. Oh my God. And I was like, okay, so I know that you know that I tweeted about running out of my Ritalin prescription, but this is work. You yeah. know, like I felt so That's- dragged. I was like wild um so I think that like that was an older generation person I think that it's a mix like my mom calling the rock hot and then the rock responding I'm like okay so that means they're friends because when you connect with somebody (laughs) on social media you're friends in real life that's what we learned Uh, and so I'm like okay so this is very I was like sorry Mr. The Rock my mom uh (laughs) didn't mean to tag you Can I ask you, I want to go back just a moment because 
I feel like you might have something helpful to say in this. For me, I I don't think I will ever be faith was a really important part of my life. The faith community that I grew up in was a really important part of my life, but I don't know that I will ever be able to be a part of another faith community because I am so mad at the humans mm-hmm. that have created systems around like these are these are essentially faith is ideas that people shared with each other about what we're all doing here. Yeah. Like that's the whole point of it, right? And um, those ideas are it's collected it's collective wisdom. It's human wisdom. And that is so valuable, right? Because we only have like however many years we have on this planet. So we should learn from the people who left something behind. We should try to get a head start and read the things that people thought before. We will always do better when we like share and, yeah. and gather knowledge. But I'm so mad at the manipulation of like or the the how faiths buy into power structures. Yeah. That I can't like abide. Like I don't think even something that was not the Catholic Church, like a some a Christian faith that was really welcoming to um queer folks or really did a lot of like racial justice. Um or like Buddhism or something, you know, like that that when folks are more new agey, they're like, I practice Buddhism because there's totally not because there is, isn't a thing. But it's yeah. not true. Even Buddhists persecute folks. But I totally hear you like What do you do with that? You personally I think, like, I think with any anger, it's valid unless it's like random racial anger that you're like, you know, let me, let me start. <laughs> no, no. No, I want to hear the end of unless it's random racial anger. Then you should go fuck yourself. Yeah, okay, sure. Okay, yes. Um, but I think that with any anger, it's necessary for you to allow yourself to feel it and to understand where it's coming from and why it's there. So you seem to understand where the, the you know, the anger is coming from. And so I think it's really valid. Um, and I think for me, the way I do everything, and it's because my mom like studied social work and psychology and my dad's in mental health. But anytime I was like mad at anything at school, they would be like, well, what was their point of view? What did they go through that day? Why did they say that? And I'd be like, why are we sympathizing with the person who was a dick to me today, mom? And she'd be like, because it makes you more, you know, compassionate, whole person. And I do that now. Like, it helps me a lot with when I deal with trolls and stuff. But as far as like a religious institution, I was really mad at Christianity for a long time. That's actually why I stopped being a Christian, because I was learning about this, you know, I grew up with this sense of like a black radical Christian tradition. And then I went to Louisiana, where there's a lot of white Christian racists. And I'm trying to figure out how are they parsing this idea that like Martin Luther King found justice from Christianity, but you're using Christianity to say that black people deserve to be enslaved. And so, yeah, like it also became even more complex as I'm going to these black churches in Louisiana and seeing a picture of white Jesus. And I'm thinking about like there was a sermon about police brutality and how we have to be uh, compassionate to our oppressors. And I just couldn't get that image out of my mind of like a group of black people and then a white Jesus. And then I started learning about the origins of white Jesus. And I started learning about the origins of the King James Bible and how it was literally written by a council of old white people in 1500 to make people less against the idea of being like, you know, ruled by a tyrant. And I was just so disgusted by it. And it wasn't until I heard folks like Broderick Greer and Reverend Jackie Lewis speak about how that is real, like that anger you feel is real because that is an injustice and that is okay um, to feel that anger, right? The injustice isn't okay. And I think it was, I needed somebody to like claim ownership of that, like to be like, no, this is a problem. It's the idea too, I think, 
um, in America where we try to sweep injustices under the rug. We try to say like, yeah, there was slavery, but like now you're here, black people, like be okay with that. It's like, no, until we recognize that like, no, America's shitty and we're trying to get better, but like, it's not perfect. Just like religion can be shitty. It's not perfect. Like um, I often say that Islam is perfect, but Muslims aren't, you know? And so I think reconciling that and also realizing it's not necessary. I think that you can be a perfectly like, you know, good whole person without having a religious doctrine um, that you're following. For me, Islam really gives me peace. I really enjoy praying five times a day and, you know, speaking to a higher power on a regular basis and having that community, even despite all the stigma and shit I go through. But my partner is a secular humanist and he believes in people. He believes in the power of humanity to overcome. He doesn't believe in a higher power. And we both, you know, coexist in the same household. And so I think whatever works for you is dope. Like, uh, we shouldn't feel pressured to subscribe to something just because we feel like it fits us or it would look good on us when really it doesn't match who we are. Yeah, I love that. That's such a good answer. What a good and and full answer. I think you're I think you're totally right. And I I mean, I think for me, what has been such a letdown about faith is that the part of the part of Catholicism that I was like involved with and connected to was the part that was pretty radical and and, and touted a bit of self-awareness mm-hmm. about about past. And I think whenever I take like a longer look, I mean, it could just be where I am in my life. I, I think I've I think right now I am finding myself pretty consumed with the idea of so many people have so much that they could do mm-hmm. and and the and the ball is dropped yeah and I, and I think when i look at faith sometimes that's the lens that i put on it which is like this could like, be we could do this you know like i just have like i just come in like we could do this guys you know and i i i recognize that that might just be the zone of what this age is for me or um the way that my work looks right now and how consuming my job is and yeah. That I feel like I'm like rolling a ball up it. And I think there's also there. like parts that we can keep that are part of ourselves. Like I really miss going to the Baptist church and like being around all the black aunties who are always just so excited to see you, even though you didn't know who any of they, them were. And I was actually at um, the 50th anniversary uh, commemoration of Martin Luther King's death. And it was like the first time I'd been in a Baptist church really since, well, I went to a funeral. But anyway. So I was at, I'll tell you about that later, but um, so I was at the commemoration of Martin Luther King's uh, murder, his assassination in Atlanta, um, where he used to preach. And it reminded me of so much of like the beauty that I found in the church. It was like we were singing, like there were songs I knew, we were singing about Jesus and I was still like turning up because like I know those songs, you know, Um, and that's still a part of me. And I still enjoy the familial sense of being in a Baptist church, even though I'm not a Baptist because it is, that's, I think, a part where that's the culture that you enjoy, but it might not be the doctrine that you ascribe to. And it's hard to separate those things, especially in the black community. And that's okay. Um, But it's also cool to see how folks incorporate that into their tradition. So there's a lot of black Muslims who do have hymns, who do have choirs, even though that's not commonplace in a Arabic, you know, church or a mosque, rather. Same thing. God's house. (laughs) Cool. Well, th- this was a great chat. Thank you. Um, I wish you all the best. Go out there and keep keep uh, keep marching. Thank you. And before I ha- send you out into the rest of your day, do you do you want to shout out a queero? Somebody who like made you feel uh, 
comfortable or it could be a place or thing? Um, so it's I like I talk so much praise about Tegan and Sarah. Like, <laughs> sure. Um, when I was at that Catholic school, um, there were like four or five of us who were queer and some folks who were just like really core, like hardcore allies. And we were all dancing in our like heavy eyeliner, straightened hair, very emo, hot topic outfits. And I had thigh high um, Doc Martens, by the way. Um, Thank like, you for that, by the way. You have to know it's that. It's really important. I think I still have How them. do you even lace those? We'll talk about they it. They zip up. There you go. There you go. They but zip up. They we were zip all up. like dancing to like Panic at the Disco or something. And then Closer came on by Tegan and Sarah. You and don't have to tell me who Closer is. <laughs> sorry. Jesus, Blair. I'm so used to talking to straight people. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but Closer came on and we were all just like in this like little mosh pit. And it was kind of like slow motion. And it, like it wasn't slow motion, but in my head it is. And I just felt really affirmed, like, like, we're hanging out, we're all queer, it's okay to be here, like, we are who we are. And then when I, like, later I looked up Tegan and Sarah and then found out, oh, no, this is a queer anthem, like, this is dope. Um, I just really became, like, you know, a lifelong fan because not only are they out here making songs that resonate with us, but they're also advocating for us. They have the Tegan and Sarah Foundation. I'm a board member on it now. Yeah, so congrats. Like, it's really Thank awesome. you. Like, 15-year-old dreams real. It can happen, y'all. Um, but if you told me when I was 15, when I was, like, you know, Tegan and Sarah posters all over my room that I was going to be on their board one day, I would have, like, called you a liar and dragged you on MySpace. We didn't have that. But... Um, <laughs> I had MySpace. <laughs> you could have. It was just wild. MySpace. Like, I might have made a chain letter on MySpace that I would sure. force you to send around. Or you're gonna get like, oh, I'm not ever gonna sign that. I'm just gonna get the 87 years bad luck. I'm never gonna send that chain letter. <laughs> I have to start doing those again. I'm gonna start sending those. You out. should. That's actually a great idea. Now, are you like so young that do you know that they used to be like they used to be like paper letters? Yeah. So you I used know to that. mail chain. Letters. That wasn't around when you were a kid, yes. was it? What? Yes. I thought that was like the 1800s. From the post office. Wow. Yeah. A person would deliver it and it would be a physical letter. So a person would deliver mail. Yeah. Wow. And it I'm was, kidding, y'all. Yeah, I know that. It was a that. physical letter and it was a chain letter. Um, Tegan and Sarah are the best. They're very nice people. Yeah. When I met them and they were just like super freaking nice people and like they knew what I do. Like it, I thought... In my head, I was like, I've just annoyed them so much. They want to meet me. So I like it, you know, but they're just really genuinely sweet people, just yeah. like you and Rhea. And yeah. I'm just so inspired by these queer icons, yourself included, who are doing this work and not just stopping it. I'm going to show up on a red carpet or I'm going to, you know, show up at a banquet dinner. It's no, I'm really going to get in the streets. I'm really going to continue to educate people. And I'm going to make sure that queer young people know that you can be and live and be happy. That's the whole goal, right? Is just to like pull some folks up, just pull some folks up or to the side or whatever, like get over here. We're okay. And um, take care of each other. Man, we have to. We really yeah. have to. Blair, it was so awesome talking to you. Thanks for Thank being you here so today. Much. Yeah. And for waiting for like ever for this. It's okay. You were I early. prayed. I got a nap in. <laughs> it was fine. Well, uh, talk to you very soon. Toodaloo. <laughs> Toodaloo. Toodaloo.